This is Roots and Stems, an indigenous language podcast brought to you by Sea Alaska Heritage. Roots and Stems is where we dig in and explore ways to support and join language revitalization efforts. My name is Akla. This episode is an interview with Dr. Lance Twitchell, who is an associate professor of Alaska Native Language at the University of Alaska Southeast. Dr. Twitchell teaches Tlingit, one of the three indigenous languages of Southeast Alaska. To begin the interview, I asked Dr. Twitchell to introduce himself and share about his language background. The summer, as I was given a name, by Sam Johnston in Teslin, because they want me to live there, which is wonderful. And uh, so it's it's great to just go different places to, to do this language work and to um, to try and live up to folks who, who I saw who were doing a lot of this stuff in the late 90s and the early 2000s and on, and uh, to have conversations with them. Like I sat down with and was able to let them know that they were heroes of mine and inspirations of mine and I've I'd always wanted to be them and and to be able to let them know that before before they took their journey the downhowers and their work have played a major role in many people's language learning I enjoyed hearing some of the backstory of their book Hashuka one of the first stories that was fully recorded in Tlingit and then transcribed, which means you, you write down all of the Tlingit and then translate it, which means you, you find an English equivalent to what's being said. And Yeshnawu, Tom Peters, uh, was from Teslin. And so they went to Teslin and they recorded him telling the story of uh, what we call the woman who married a bear. In Tlingit, it sort of translates to the woman who offended the bears and they they recorded this story and then they they left Teslin and on that journey they also stopped in Shkagwe uh, and recorded uh Bert Dennis my mother's father's father and uh, it was really neat because they're on the same tape and they spent a year I think writing down the Tlingit and then translating it from what Nora told me, the very first thing that was translated was the speech by Natla Jesse Dalton. Uh, and that was incredibly intimidating for Nora. But that might be the first thing that was fully written out in Tlingit and then transcribed. And so uh, prior to that, there had been a bunch of stuff done, but just sort of not trying to really capture the entirety of what's being said there. And so they went back 
to Tessan a year later. They met with Yeshnawu. They read him the story. And they said, we just want to make sure we capture this accurately. And there were a couple of really fascinating things because a year had gone by. And uh, this story is in Hashuka, the Clinkett Oral Narratives book. And Tom Peters got really excited. And he said, I haven't heard a story like that in years. Let me tell you how it ends. Yeah, and then he, the, what they realized is he, sang, he told the story, he sang these songs, and then when he was done with the songs, maybe everybody got a little distracted or maybe it was this really emotional point, but they just kind of stopped. And then he realized that he didn't finish the story. But also uh, he thought that, I think Richard Dauenhauer read it, or maybe Nora, but I think Richard read it, and he said, I didn't realize you could speak Clinkett so well, but it was actually his own words, but a year had gone by. And when Richard Downhower was reflecting on it, he said, if you're the greatest piano player in the world, who, who do you listen to? You know, so as he, they went back and they read this story to him, and then he told them part two. And I think in the spring, we were sitting there and we were listening to it in a class on Clinkett Oral Literature. And then we realized that the, there were two separate recordings out there. So I found both of them and spliced them together into one recording. And then this summer, we listened to it in Teslin with some relatives and descendants of Yeshnavu. Uh, but just sort of thinking about the type of work that was done and the monumental work uh, that has been done and the incredible pile of work left for us to continue to do. So I try to tell people, uh, you should come learn Tlingit because you'll never run out of things to do because there's always stuff to do. I asked Kune to tell us more about his language journey. I was always close with my mother's father, Gushtihin Sai Dennis. Uh, he's Dakloidi. Our families are from the Tlkut and Jishkat areas. So his father's people were Tlkut, Tlkuk Adi, from the Tlkut area. And then his mother was from Jishkat, from Kit Gushihit in Tlkuan. And he got really ill. And so I came home from college and was living with he and my grandmother and just trying to help out. And then I just kind of realized, probably from talking with his sister, my Auntie Kathy, that he knew Tlingit and uh, that nobody else in our family was really a speaker of Tlingit. And so we had a bunch of time and we talked about a bunch of stuff. And one day at the kitchen table, I just said, hey, you should teach me Clinkit. And he pointed at the salt and he said, and I tried to say it and he laughed at me. And then uh, he laughed at people all the time though. So it was, it was fine. And I just thought, well, goal number one is to get him to stop laughing at me when I speak it. And goal number two is to be able to talk to him. And so we kind of set up a plan where he would, I would find resources that were out there at the time, it was the, the Orange Dictionary by uh, Nation Story, and then also the Verb Dictionary. And so those are kind of the two resources we had. This was 1996. And uh, so, and then beginning Klingit. So I had those three, I, I found those three things, and I started really just trying to go through them. And then I ended up going back to college, and uh, we, had, we had a plan. So the first part of the plan was I said, well, let me just, I got one year of college left. Let me just, uh, for my undergraduate, let me just table that. And you and I will just learn. You'll just teach me Tlingit. And we'll just learn how, I'll just learn how to talk. But then he said, well, just go back and finish. And then you won't have to worry about, you know, 
putting your school off anymore. And I said, all right. So then I went back, and then um, he called me to come home. He said, you should come home. And this was about halfway through the fall semester. And I said, well, I'm almost done with this semester. Then I got one more semester, and then I'll be totally done. And then uh, he passed away not long after that. And so I had a lot of grief and I had a lot of guilt because I felt like I didn't answer the call. And I was kind of going a little bit sideways in life and not making good decisions. And then one day I just decided to try and go back to, to college. And so I went back to uh, the University of Minnesota. And when I got down there, uh, I started listening to Beginning Clinkett more and through the voice of uh, Nora Dauenhauer, Richard Dauenhauer, and Quinnock, Fred White, uh, I was able to keep this connection to my grandfather. And so for me, it was this way to stay connected to him and, and this journey that we sort of started. And then at about that same time, I discovered this book called Stabilizing Indigenous Languages, which the editor of the book was at, I think, Arizona State or Northern Arizona University. And he just happened to be driving by the University of Minnesota with an extra box of these books. And he drops them off at our American Indian Learning Resource Center. And I found it. And then I wrote a paper uh, called Stabilizing Indigenous Languages. This was probably 1997. Uh, it was for an English class, an upper-level English class. And the teacher assistant wrote on the paper, C minus, why doesn't everybody just speak English? And it, it kind of lit a fire because I was, it was an act of discrimination. Uh, it wasn't grading my work. It was, it was this English-only type of argument. And so I took it to the teacher. I took it to the dean. I took it to the chair of the English department. And I think that helped me realize that there's still hostility out there towards indigenous languages. At the same time, I'm studying the work of Michael Krauss, and Richard Little Bear and others who are documenting the current state of indigenous languages, which I think could be summarized by a quote in the early 2000s by Michael Krauss, uh, Dr. Michael Krauss, who recently passed away. And he said, we stand to lose more North American indigenous languages in the next 30 years than in the entirety of contact with European peoples. And so just trying to think of things and see that as a call to action and then to figure out what can I do to continuously contribute to the health of a language and to changing an entire cultural and social landscape of a place so that language lives and breathes, is valued, has spaces, and uh, is fully embraced by its indigenous population. I feel that there are often heavy feelings surrounding our language, and for this reason, I look for ways to make other people laugh and want to find more ways for people to have fun and feel good while doing this work. Une shared some advice with me. When you start learning an indigenous language and you're part of a movement to bring it to a place of health and, and use and power, I think humor is a necessary component. Kaklake Norman James uh, is an elder I love to work with in Carcross. And one day he said, you know, I used to just sit here and when I was a young man, I'd look at these old people and I thought, they're just walking around trying to find someone to laugh with. And then I got older and now I'm just walking around trying to find someone to laugh with. You know? <laughs> and so it was it was great because we were always trying to find funny things and, and think it like we were trying to invent a, a verb for brushing your teeth. And he was using chosh, which is a brush like you would pull off of a tree, you know, and so 
Uh, and we were just having so much fun and like thinking of the elders and, and especially some of these folks who uh, you sit at a table and you talk to them for a while. I had a conversation with Chukatin, Jane Smarch, uh, who is Kokhatan and um, passed away about a year ago. And she said, I haven't talked like that since my dad died 20 years ago. You know, and so sometimes there's a real heaviness to, to this work and there's a real intimidation to this work and, and there's this sort of deep-seated feeling that you can't do it, you won't do it, you shouldn't do it. You're facing criticism and, and you feel like you need to be perfect. And so the, the laughter, I think, helps alleviate those things and just shows you that we're, we're after personal connections. We're after a path that allows us to imitate our ancestors, but to still be ourselves and to take control of the destiny of our language and to take control of the future of our people and our culture and to do so in a way that's healthy and positive and inviting. And laughter is a huge component. And so if once you learn Tlingit, you, you'll realize that there's a lot of just joking around that does happen. And it's fun, it's funny, and the humor doesn't always translate very well. It's like, oh, if you translate this, everybody's going to get uncomfortable. So I've been in situations <laughs> like that because there's certain things that are just funny and thinking. But getting to the bottom of it also takes, it just takes some negotiation and navigation and understanding that there's a time and place for jokes, and there's a time and place for when the language needs a, a more serious component. And it's a, ev everything that we need is located within our language. And so we've been told as we were learning, were the seeds in the place where our ancestors used to be. He had another approach to draw more people in by how we set the space for our language. How do we make the language the best place to be. And so for me, I'll usually say, okay, if we're going to do something and let's say we're having a gathering of our people, let's have a room that's just for our language. Let's take all the best coffee and all the best food and put it in there and say, everybody should be here. Uh, because a lot of our people are hurt. They, they have guilt, they have pain, they have all kinds of stuff will be revealed as you, as you learn an indigenous language. And part of that is going to be the the violence that we we push towards each other, uh, what some people call lateral violence or lateral oppression. And so some of the things that I think we can do is, and also there's exclusion, there's all kinds of things that go on. And so if I say, well, let's have our language be here and let's put the best things in here, some of our own people will think, oh, well, I'm not allowed to have the best things. And it's actually... It's saying, no, you should actually come here and have these best things. And you should be here with us and do this stuff. And so some of the things I like to, to try and reinforce is indigenous people are tremendously intelligent people. They're capable people. They're wonderful, creative people. They're kind people. And then there's lots of other things that, you know, it's always just a, an assumption whenever you say people are blank. But... We have these qualities and we have control of our own language and we just need more of our population to realize the day-to-day -day choices that they make are what determines whether our language lives or dies. And we're getting enough people to make me think that we're going to survive for another generation, but it does have to continue to shift. It has to continue to shift so that the language, you just see it and hear it all over the place. And to get us to that point where we don't have to think so hard to get the thing it brain going.
Goal setting is helpful, especially when taking on something as large as language revitalization. Krune shares some of his goals. I want to be able to just look at a whole field of, of children and say, okay, somebody tell me a story. And there's, there's multiple ones to pick from. I want to get to a point where I don't know everybody who speaks Tlingit. Uh, and I hear repeatedly in Hawaii, uh, a lady, she was sharing a story. She went to Costco and they didn't have the thing she was looking for. And she turned to her husband and started talking in Hawaiian about how upset she was that they ran out of this. And then the cashier also spoke in Hawaiian and said, please forgive me, we're working on getting this stuff back. And, you know, and so, and she was just shocked because she didn't know that person. And so that's, that's what I want, and that we can conduct transactions and think it. Here he shared some steps that can be taken to help us meet these language goals. For me, I think it's building these language medium programs so that you might have a program that teaches language and culture, but you also have programs that teach the entire world through our language. That, I think, unlocks an incredible level of fluency because you're going to have to talk about the salmon cycle and you're going to have to tell kids where the water goes when you flush the toilet and you're going to have to do a bunch of this other stuff. I think another step would be focusing on adult learning opportunities. Uh, and so there's a wide variety of things. There's courses that are at the university. There's language camps and gatherings. And, and I think looking at what the Mohawk have done with adult learning programs where you have a house where people just live in the language. And then constructing or, or having a house like that. Like if, if you thought of Juno, I think there's, you know, there's a shortage of land and there's a shortage of houses. Uh, or maybe there's not a shortage, maybe there's too expensive. But if you built a neighborhood where everybody in that neighborhood was committed to using the language all the time, and then you had this sort of language neighborhood, and you can have uh, a language nest and a language medium school there, and you could sort of use that as a hearth, and, and also not take away from anything that's going on right now, which is wonderful, and in the public schools and at the university and in, in these other institutions. But sort of realizing like that opportunity, you can have some long-term residents, like this person's going to become a very high-fluency speaker and a teacher and maybe work in this place. And then you're going to have folks who, uh, oh yeah, I studied Clinkit for 10 years, but that was five years ago and I've forgotten a bunch. And we can have them go live there for a while. So you can have kind of short-term and medium and long-term residencies. Uh, I think programs like that would be wonderful. I think consolidating all of our curriculum efforts and creating a publishing house that's uh, Sea Alaska Heritage Institute and Gold Belt Heritage Foundation and Clinkett and Haida and other invested partners so that making high quality materials that's in our language and for our language movement is not challenging and it's locally available and it's as cheap as we can possibly make it while still keeping it a very high quality item. Uh, I think those would be really, really positive initiatives to sort of keep us going. These, these language nests are going, and then we're trying to sort of mesh this effort with the TCLL program, and then trying to envision, well, what could the university program become? And I think for uh, it's a challenge because of the current sort of budget and political climate, but I still think you can make a college of Alaska Native Languages within the University of Alaska system. That in entity is charged with 
helping produce new speakers, new materials, and certify teachers of indigenous languages so that they can have full teacher certifications and they don't have to be uh, a type M or some sort of thing, which is, it served its purpose and it was wonderful, but I think it also just says, oh yeah, well, they, they only do that thing instead of saying, oh yeah, a teacher of Alaska Native Languages is a fully certified teacher in a curriculum that fully incorporates indigenous languages. I asked Une what organizations can do and what individuals can do to support language revitalization. And one of the things that Tinek Pungi shared with us is, I speak my grandmother's language, but I don't speak like my grandmother. And I thought that was a really important concept because sometimes I feel like collectively we're chasing perfection when I think we should be chasing use and comfortability, right? Just just being comfortable using the language. So you don't have to feel like uh, someone's going to laugh at you or you're going to get uh, embarrassed and and that it's a place that you belong and that is safe. So I think one of the things that our organizations can do is just create and maintain safe spaces. And some of that's going to take some cultural shifts because I think within our language community, uh, as with any indigenous language community, I talk to other people who are doing this stuff, some of the worst treatment you might receive is by someone who actually just wants the same thing as you do. And so how do, how do we get beyond that so that we're not hurting each other and we're not doing things that are going to, uh, we're not going to do this thing just because so-and-so said it and somebody doesn't like them, right? It's, so for me, like the individuals involved, in particular some of our, some of our folks who are in leadership positions, it, it needs to be something that's pretty much completely free of ego. So this is not about me. This is not about these particular things. Like, uh, I I might not like this person. That does not matter. What matters is the language and the health of the language and constructing a movement that's unstoppable. And so one of the things that uh, William Wilson, uh, who we know as Pila in Hawaii, told us is language revitalization is about two things. One, Protect the speakers you have while making new ones. Two, make your language the language of power and use. So one of the things that I think could be done within our organizations is a little bit more of a a meshed network of activities so that it's not necessarily this group's thing and then this group's thing and then this group's thing, but it's this big collective collaborative thing. Some of the, the next steps is recognizing that what folks have done is incredible. The, the things that are uh, currently in the public school system, TCLL, and the other networks of language and cultural programs that are in Juno and that are in Huna and Sitka and Wrangell and Ketchikan and Cake and Carcross and Teslin and Kluckwan, and just sort of realizing the incredible amount of work that folks have done and, and just really trying to recognize folks for, for that work. I, I think. The other thing is trying to envision where do we go from here and saying that we can, we can continue to improve, we can continue to dream the impossible dream, as, as some folks say, uh, I've heard folks say in Hawaii. Une has some great things to keep in mind for people who are learning and people who are wanting to learn language. For people who, who are new to the language, or even if you've been studying for a long time and you feel like you're kind of spinning your wheels. 
one of the first things I like to say to folks is, is believe in yourself and believe in your power and your ability and your place in a language movement because everybody belongs here. Everybody should be here. Uh, this is not a place where uh, some people belong and, and others don't. The other thing is understand the realities of the commitment. I think anybody can learn how to speak Klingit. Anybody can do it. But I think what I like to tell people is I say, if you want to learn Klingit and you don't know, then you cannot be the same person and you cannot live the same life. Because if there's not room for it in your life, you must create it. Kashachishti, Roy Mitchell, once shared with us, if you want to become a speaker of an endangered language, you kind of have to do this drill where you list what are your top five things in life? What are your five top things that you like to do? Is it basketball or watching movies or cooking or hiking? You know, just list them out. These are my top five. Pick one to become number six and put language in its place. So that has to be one of the top five things you do in your life. It, it can't be this, you know, oh yeah, I do this you know, a couple of hours a week. That might get you started. But at some point in order to, to nest an entire worldview and grammar and, and everything else into your mind and to burn those new pathways and to connect with that Tlingit brain and that Tlingit spirit, it does take this pretty seismic shift in the way that you live your life. But then you can connect to folks who are in the language movement and who are speaking and who will talk to you and who will correct with kindness and love and who will just focus on communication over perfection. And so those are two things. And then sort of on the practical standpoint, I think there's multiple ways to get to the mountaintop. But one path is sort of taking a look and just understanding like there are certain sounds that Clinkett has. It's got about 64 of them. A lot of them aren't in English. And so you're going to have to get your mouth to do some new things. And I try to encourage folks to say, instead of saying like, I can't do that, just say, that one's really hard. And just understand that you'll be able to. And you know, we all have more or less the same sort of physical structures. Some people do have some things that might limit their ability to to speak and, and those are those are real but then beyond the sounds now you get into let me learn a bunch of names for things those are nouns and then let me learn some phrases that i can substitute these nouns into and then let me start learning the structure of the language and so every language has a structure clinket uh, is very uh, highly intellectual it likes to categorize everything. It's like, that's that type of thing. That's that type of thing. That's that type of thing. It likes to uh, create specific verbs for specific things like gutting fish and skinning seals. And so just get ready for an entirely different worldview uh, in terms of how direction works, location, verbs. You have to get into at some point objects and subjects. And don't fear these conversations, but also find this balance. And for me, the balance is listening to the language, whole language, big chunks of it that are you know, from master speakers. And then speak it. You have to make the language. And, and that means, you know, when I started learning Hawaiian, 
I would see people walking towards me at the College of Hawaiian Language, and I would look at them and say, they're coming at me to speak Hawaiian because they know that I'm learning it. And uh, it made me nervous, but I was also excited. And so we have to create that environment as well. Oh, look, there's someone who's learning. Go talk to them and, and do it in a way that's non-threatening, uh, but also has some expectations. We can't have our language be just a handshake. Oh, what are you doing today? Right? And it's this sort of thing where we, we've got to move beyond that so that this is the language we communicate in. And then we have to figure out what our needs are. If we don't know how to talk about this particular thing, let's go to our speakers and let's figure it out. Let's use the language everywhere. Whatever people are talking about, let's give them the tools to use that language. And so for me, that those, those are my sets of, of advice. And, and stick it out, stay with each other, do everything with love and kindness in terms of your language journey. And then also uh, just look out for each other, support each other. There, there's so many people. If, if we had all the people who started to learn Tlingit and, and walked away from it for whatever reason, if all of them were speakers, we'd have thousands of speakers now. I think we have about 200, but I think we're on this exponential growth period right now where if, if things continue to build and to strengthen and to get better, I would think in, in 30 years from now, we could have a thousand speakers. And so we need to start setting some goals. I think for our institutions and for ourselves, we need to recognize when people are going up certain levels. We say, oh yeah, they can do this now. There should be some real recognition and reward for that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it's very easy to just be assimilated and to just not put our language as the most valuable thing. And so if people are working in the language, that should be legitimate work, great salary. I think our indigenous organizations could say, oh yeah, if you speak our, one of our indigenous languages, you just make more money. You, you, it's a, something we can put value onto. And, it, and then eventually it's something we can expect. Normalizing language use supports language learners of all levels. And I asked Hune to describe what normalization looks like. I think a, a big part is uh, those who can speak the language, speak the language, right? And it doesn't matter if there's misfires. Like I had a conversation with a friend. We saw each other and it was, right? So like, even if someone gives you the, what might not be the correct answer, don't step out of the language and say, oh, well, I actually said, what are you doing? And then you said it's raining. So instead of sort of moving into this correct you through English, stay in it and just challenge, uh, challenge yourself, challenge each other. This could be in small groups. This could be in pairs. This could be in larger things. I think it'd be really fun to just sort of pick some restaurants in town and just take them over for a night and have a a Tlingit meal where there's a, if you speak Tlingit, come and eat, do it all in Tlingit. We've talked for a while about having basically developing a kui, a ceremony for our language to help people let go of some of the guilt and the pain that they might feel that's very real. 
and that, that can keep a person from becoming a speaker. And then the act of normalizing the language. Some of the things that I've seen in different areas is in the grocery store, pick one of the grocery stores to partner with us. And they, they can, we can put all the names of all these different things. And maybe we start with some and we start to sort of just say, oh yeah, we'll put this over by the apples, right? And then people will see it like, oh yeah. Uh, radio shows, uh, there's a lot that's been done with media among the Maori people, uh, Welsh, Gaelic, Hawaii. And so just sort of tapping into that as well to create content in our language and to have the news in our language and to have talk shows. And, and, and KTOO and, and others are, are open to the idea. And so it's not a limited space or bandwidth. And so the normalization just means how familiar is the language with the land? Are you going to see it? Are you going to hear it? And I think restoring our place names is a huge part of that. Uh, we don't need to have Lemon Creek and Mendenhall and, and all these colonial names that are absent of the depth of meaning that our place names have and just continue to convince everybody that if we just use the Tlingit name for things, people will learn how to say it. We'll be at a place a generation from now where people will be like, can you believe that people thought that nobody could say these words, you know? And so this, this whole idea that if it's not English, uh, it can't be done or it's wrong, we, we've got to really push back against those things. And then so normalization just means putting the language out there in, in as many places as we, as we can. Businesses could put signs up that say, and then we can talk to each other. Uh, there was someone, I, I think from Kwan who used to work at Safeway. And I would always go on her line because we could talk clinket to each other. And that was always so exciting for me. And then the vernacular is another area, is what do people talk about? Day-to-day -day stuff. Make sure that they know how to do that in our language. So if I want to tell you, you know, there's bingo tonight, and I hope I win, and there's a basketball tournament, and you know, whatever those things are that people want to talk about, let's, let's give them the tools to talk about it in our language. Because I thought a radio show would be great because you could talk about hunting and berry picking and all, and you could share a bunch of great secrets that are not exclusive, but that are, if you know the language, then you're in the group. And everybody should be in the group. I appreciate this time that I had with Dr. Twitchell, as well as his care and thoughtfulness in his approach to language work. And I especially loved that everybody should be in the group. Roots and Stems is sponsored by Sea Alaska Heritage. Artwork for this podcast is by Lingit artist Allison Bremner. The music is a Tsimshian song from Metlachatla, composed by Chuk Tugnitzaskik, Gavin Hudson, Oechsen for granting us permission to use the Achkin Dim Algagan for this podcast. Please visit sealaskaheritage.org for more information on this podcast and other programs. Gunchish Haat Oechsen.